I hope that that is true of you, that you desire to worship the Lord in all sincerity, with all of your heart, that you love Him because of the love that He has first shown to you. Last week we talked about love and acknowledged that everybody wants love. We all want love. Uh, I understand that many of the home groups went very long last week talking about love. We talked about love from First Peter, where the first and second chapters uh, we overlap with the text, and and determined that true love is not readily found in contemporary portrayals of love. Everybody wants to tell you what love is, but true love is only found in Scripture. It comes. Christian love comes at the same, the same way that Christians are born, through the truth of the gospel. In fact, all of the Christian life is inextricably linked to the truth of the gospel found in God's Word. You know, speaking of the Christian life, I imagine that if I were to ask you one-on-one, where is power for living the Christian life found? That you would readily and quickly answer the Holy Spirit. That would be a correct answer, but it would be incomplete. It would be somewhat incomplete. In addition to the fact that the entire triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, are involved in our sanctification, it is also true that the Word of God, the living and abiding Word of God, molds our lives into what God wants us to be. In fact, in the same way that truth and the Christian life are inseparable, so are the Spirit and the Word linked. We talk a great deal about the Holy Spirit. I just want the Holy Spirit to have rain. I want the Holy Spirit to do this. It would be great if the Spirit would do this. Well, the Spirit doesn't divorce Himself from the Word. This is where we find the Spirit of God. He never moves away from His Word. This book that we possess is a treasure. And it's a greater treasure than you might imagine. Because so much of Peter's teaching is rooted in the Old Testament, whether it be an outright quote of an Old Testament or an allusion to an Old Testament passage. We're going to see both in our text this morning. Uh, because it's, it's so linked, Peter links so much of what he teaches to the Old Testament. And in fact, all of the New Testament writers do the same thing. They refer back or they allude back to what was written in the Old Testament. Because of that, it behooves us to increase our knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament and to see how God wants us to interact with it in these New Testament times. You probably heard Sean uh, Cross speak about this in the past. Well, today he's going to give us a fuller sense of this topic, just as our text demands. Then afterwards, I'm going to bring a bit of application to this text. So, Sean will speak after we read our text, which is the same as last week, 1 Peter 1, 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. So if you would please stand for the reading of the word. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Our Father, we submit to your word where we find your will for our lives. Father, we ask that the Spirit of God would take these words, burn them on our hearts. Lord, and in the process of this life of exile, this life that doesn't just quite add up because we're really not at home, we're really not in the place that you designed for us to be. May the truth of the gospel guide us and lead us to the place that you desire for us to be. You show us where that is, and then you empower us through your word, through your spirit, through Jesus living in us to live as the children of our Father. And Father, we pray in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, BC. Well, as Brad said, uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about how Peter uses the Old Testament uh, in the passage that we've been reading. And really, this is a theme for Peter in the entire book. Uh, we've already seen him allude, um, if not to Old Testament scripture, to knowledge that can only come from being familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, he's called his audience, uh, which in this case now is us, but the church in Asia, he's called them elect exiles of the dispersion. Uh, he has referred to them as the people of God. Later on, he's going to talk about how we as believers are are a chosen race, um, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who have been called out to, to proclaim the excellencies of God uh, who has saved us. Uh, and in this text, he, act, he directly quotes uh, the Old Testament, uh, specifically Isaiah 40, uh, and then he alludes to Psalm 34, and we're going to look at both of those. But before we can do those, uh, before we can do that well, uh, we need to understand a little bit of how the apostles and how the New Testament church viewed Old Testament scripture. Uh, and this is important uh, because Peter does not take time every time he alludes to or quotes the Old Testament to state why. Uh, he expects that they know it, uh, which speaks a little bit to what they think about scripture, but he expects that they know it. Um, well, first of all, the what we need to understand about the New Testament view of Old Testament Scripture is that they believe firmly that all Scripture is God-breathed. In 1 Peter uh, 1.25, uh, we see that Peter, in quoting Isaiah, says that this is the word of the Lord and that that word is living and active. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3.16, a lot of you may know it, but uh, it says all Scripture. And Paul is giving this, and at the time, all Scripture that they had was the Old Testament. Now, I'm sure there, there's probably some understanding that what was being circulated uh, was, was authoritative. 
Uh, certainly it was, because in Acts we see that, that they, at church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which we have now collected and canonized in the scriptures. Um, and so we know that all scripture is God-breathed, and, and, and being God-breathed, it is, it is good for certain things. Uh, it works in our lives to, to make us perfect, uh, to, to perfect us, uh, to sanctify us, to teach us. Um, but also in Hebrews 3, 7, and this one perhaps is the most striking to me because um, Hebrews is all about the Old Testament being worked out in Jesus. Uh, and it's written to a Hebrew audience, to a Jewish audience. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, Hebrews 3, 7, just after uh, the author of Hebrews has quoted a text saying that this is what David says, as David says. Uh, do not reject do not reject God as as they did in the wilderness, or you will not enter my rest. Uh, very shortly after, in Hebrews three seven, the author then says, "As the Holy Spirit says," and then quotes the exact same thing that he had just previously said. David said, and so there was this understanding, there was this knowledge that yes, men did write the Old Testament. Scripture is penned um, by men. Uh, that it is still the working of the Holy Spirit. Uh, whether it be uh, directly through somebody having a vision or hearing the audible word of God, or whether it be through the Spirit uh, working in the situations uh, of the, in the lives of the authors, uh, bringing them to this place where, where, they, uh, where they pen these words. And then later on we see, no, this is the Holy Spirit that's been moving in them. And that's, that's important because we see both of those here. Uh, Isaiah has a direct word from the Lord, thus says the Lord. And, and David is writing out of the overflow of the experience that he's just had. And so they viewed scripture, although being penned by men, as God breathed, as written by the Holy Spirit, uh, which Brad was talking about. You cannot, you cannot divorce the Holy Spirit and the word. Uh, you, you will, you will misunderstand both. Greatly. Um, and so not only did they view it as God breathed, they also viewed it as living and active. And again, uh, Peter, Peter says that here and he's quote, um, he is quoting the Old Testament, uh, but also in Hebrews 4.12, uh, speaking of the fact that, that those who turn from Jesus will not enter the rest of God, uh, the author of Hebrews alludes to a battle that the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, gets into in the wilderness and they lose because of their faithlessness, because they don't believe the words and the promises of God. Uh, and, and the warning is, be careful, because the word of God is a double-edged sword. Uh, it's active and living, and it pierces the soul. It pierces the bone and the marrow. Uh, this is God's word. Uh, it's alive. And, and just like in 2 Timothy, it's changing you or it's judging you. One of the two. And it's doing so actively. Uh, and so this is big for a Hebrew audience because if it's just history, and we need to remember this because we relegate the Old Testament sometimes to just history. If it's only history and not more, which we'll talk about what more in the next point, um, then, then in many ways, it's not living and active. Uh, we don't go to our history books expecting to be changed 
by George Washington crossing the Delaware. It just doesn't happen. You know, we don't pray that the Spirit would move us as we go back to our science textbooks. We just don't. You know, like I'm learning about E equals MC squared. God changed my life and may I live in relativity. We just don't do that. You know, but the word of God we come to and and we expect to be changed because it's living, it's alive, it's breathing. It's not just history. It's not just prophecy and poems. It's the word of God that is moving in you. There's more to it. And what is it? Um, We realize uh, by what Peter says um, right after he quotes Isaiah, uh, we realize that all scripture is viewed as gospel. Uh, And this is something that in our minds in America after the Enlightenment, we have a hard time uh, thinking about. Because for us, we hear the word gospel and what we think is that story of Jesus from birth to death and resurrection, that if you hear upon hearing and believing in that story and in the Jesus of that story, um, you'll be saved. The gospel is that thing that we proclaim in hopes that people will come to the altars um, and if they're not in church that uh, they will bow before the altar of God in their hearts um, and be converted. Um, and the gospel is very much that. But it's so much more. Um, the gospel is the entire story of a king and his kingdom. The gospel is the entire story of God redeeming his people. Jesus even says it on the road to Emmaus. Uh, when he's, he's resurrected now, two men are walking with him. They don't know who he is. Uh, they're saddened by the fact that Jesus has died. And they express this to Jesus not knowing he's Jesus. Uh, and then he, he corrects them, he teaches them, and he be- proceeds to show them, and this is how Luke says it, how Moses, beginning with Moses, straight through the prophets, so the entire Old Testament, the entire scripture of their day, how it was speaking of him, how it was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, we see it in Genesis 3, even in the curse, Eve is being cursed and we see the gospel, the very first gospel, because in her curse is this. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have pain bearing children, but from you will come the seed that will crush the enemy. In your curse will come this seed that will crush the enemy. Gospel. Hope is coming. Through the seed of the woman. The promise wasn't made to Adam. There's even gospel in that. We see the beginnings of Mary and Jesus. We see this being prototyped. All throughout the gospel, we see the story of redemption. Um, and, it, and, it, and it's in circles, it's in cycles that get bigger and bigger, but it keeps having the cycle because everybody who's the hero of the story, hero, is flawed and dies. And then we get to Jesus. End of cycle. Because everything was proclaiming And preparing the way for Jesus. And Peter expects this view from all of the people who are reading his letters, from the church. In Hebrews, uh, the author maybe has a little bit more, um, it makes sense that he would expect this Hebrew audience who has grown up being steeped in the Hebrew scriptures to know these things. But Peter is speaking to an exclusively Gentile audience. And he expects them to understand the history uh, and the nuances of what he's saying. Undoubtedly, there are people who don't and who didn't. And they still 
uh, they still glean great wisdom and truth from what Peter is saying. But for those who did, the richness of what Peter is saying is so alive. And that's the call to you is to know your scriptures, the Old Testament. Because as we'll see, these things that it seems like Peter's just kind of quoting, you know, like because this, this kind of helps my point, you know, like, like we do. You know, we, we want to prove a point, and so we pull Scripture, um, sometimes in context, sometimes out of context, but we don't see the fullness of it, and, and it works. But what Peter is doing here is much more amazing than that. It's much more compelling than that. And he's expecting his, his audience to get it. And shame on us for not knowing our Scriptures enough to get it too. They did it before the movable-type printing press which means they had to go to a central location. Uh, The local church was so important in the New Testament. The synagogues were so important because it was the place where the word of God was. They didn't have scrolls in their houses. We do. How much more ought we know these things? Ought we read the New Testament and hear what Peter is saying and say, wow, wow. Look at what he just did. And we're going to talk a little bit about what he just did. And so let's go ahead. Let's turn to Isaiah 40. Because in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, uh, he has this quote. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 40. Uh, and so we are going to read Isaiah 40. It's a good thing to do when it's quoted. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11, uh, but I do want to give some context to it. I I want to tell you what happens in Isaiah 39. Um, At this point in history, uh, I love history, and the youth will tell you that, and so I'm going to try not to be too long on it. Basically, at this point in history, uh, the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. Um, they have had the, the word of the Lord come against them for their lack of faith, for their lack of adhering to the word, for their lack of being the people that they were called to be. Uh, and God says that I'm going to bring judgment on you. And that comes uh, to the northern kingdom first uh, by way of the Assyrians. They, they, uh, they conquer Israel. Okay, but it hasn't yet happened to Judah because Judah has a good king and that king's name is Hezekiah. But Judah is still not living according to the promise, trusting in the promise of God. And so Isaiah brings word in chapter 39 that the Babylonians are going to come. Judah will fall. Jerusalem will fall to the hands of the Babylonians. Uh, and that all that they have will be taken from them, and that their sons will be taken from them, that their sons and their daughters will be pulled out of their homeland uh, into exile in Babylon. And the reality is that at this point, the people of the Lord, God's people, God's chosen people, are dispersed throughout the entire known world at the time. In exile. They're still God's people. But they're in exile. And so now we have the elect, the chosen exiles who are dispersed of the diaspora. So we have Isaiah speaking about and speaking words to God's people who are in a very similar situation to what Peter has said of the church. All right. And so let's read Isaiah 40. Comfort my people, says your God. 
speak tenderly to Jerusalem and hear her cry and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And so I've already mentioned some of them, but let's look at the similarities between Isaiah 40 and what Peter is doing in 1 Peter. Uh, The first similarity is in the audience, and this is what I talked about. The audience is exiled. We know that from their history. Uh, The audience clearly is oppressed. Everything they have has been taken from them. They've been made to work in the courts of the king. They've been made to eat defiled foods. Some of them will resist, but most of them will not. Most of them will succumb to the oppression. Only, uh, Only the remnant will remain faithful. Uh, They are oppressed, but yet they are still chosen. Uh, The audience that Isaiah is talking to and the audience that Peter is talking to bear much resemblance. And you might even say, as is a typical pattern, that the physical historical truth of the Old Testament is now finding spiritual manifestation uh, on the other side of the cross. Um, but also similar is the message. Uh, and we'll have to remember back in Peter because it's not just the message of this passage. Uh, but, but Isaiah is calling the people to put your hope in the coming revelation of the Lord. Put your hope in the, in the fact that your God is coming. And he's going to make himself known. And in making himself known, he's going to make his people known. And he's going to restore and redeem his people. That, that is our hope. That is the hope that Peter proclaims. But Isaiah also says that we ought to live according to the imperishable word of God. Uh, and this is where Peter is speaking in our text now. He's telling them to do these things. To live this way, um, to put away malice and slander and deceit, to love one another, not of your own strength, but in abiding in the living Word of God. Which means you have to know the Word of God. You have to study the Word of God. 
And Isaiah is telling the same thing to his people who are now dispersed, to God's people who are now dispersed across the world. He's saying, live holy lives as God's chosen people, which we've already seen Peter say, be holy as I'm holy. He quotes Leviticus. He quotes Deuteronomy. We see Peter telling the church, uh, as Brad said, to be who you are. You are God's chosen people. Live like it. Love like it. Be set apart. He communicates all of this. And, and, and you have to understand that this would have been communicated. In quoting just those two verses from Isaiah, immediately the people who have read Isaiah begin to think, wow, we're a lot more like that than I thought. You know, God is speaking to me. Certainly, the promise is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and the death and the resurrection already. But there is still yet promise to come. He will, re- he will return in glory. And the whole universe, the whole universe will see his glory. I have to live in hope of that. I need to remember these things as I am suffering, as I am a stranger in this land. I ought to live holy lives. And, and, and Peter doesn't stop there. After quoting that directly, and, and clearly, clearly the situations, the circumstances surrounding uh, his audience, uh, they, would, they would glean that truth from the text. He continues on, and he says, Put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And just by way of clarification here, the ESV actually does not have the greatest translation of the end of this verse. If is, is, is more indicative. It, it's more rightly because or since or for. Do all these things since indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And if just especially the way we use it, does not communicate that. There's no uncertainty here in Peter's mind that he's speaking to the church, uh, to people who have tasted that the Lord is good. And also, there's no uncertainty in Peter's mind that any of the things that he has just told them to do cannot be done apart from God's work in your life. Um, But he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, and all of us hear that and we think, taste and see that the Lord is good, hopefully, maybe not, but they would have, and we should as well. It should make our minds go back to David. And we're going to read that. And I'm, I'm not going to go into the fullness of this. Uh, I didn't go into the fullness of Isaiah. I just can't. There's not time now or in the rest of the year to do it. But, but we will read Psalm 34. And it might be good once a week, once a day to read Psalm 34 until we're done with Peter, because he comes back to it, and he does quote it directly later. But Psalm 34, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and went away. This is referring to something that happens in First Samuel 21. Essentially, David has been anointed. He slayed Goliath. Saul finds out that he's anointed and there is this chase. Saul is trying to kill David. And this is in the midst of David being pursued by Saul. Uh, David is, in essence, an exile in his own land. 
in the place of his birth. Uh, he is being oppressed in the place of his birth. He comes to, he comes to Abimelech, who's a priest, uh, and he eats of the bread of the presence. And so he now has tasted the bread of the presence of the Lord. Uh, and then he uh, pretends to be crazy so that he can escape his, his captors. He says, though, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes it boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cries and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. I taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now imagine reading that in the midst of great persecution and suffering in your own land. I know I read that fast. Read it again. Reflect on it. But but Peter, in simply saying, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, is drawing their minds to this. And as they're reading it, think of the comfort and, and think of of the command here. David is being pursued by the man who's supposed to be his king. He's supposedly going to be king. God has anointed him. There's a promise. He's in his own land. He's being oppressed. He's running for his life. And he says, bless the Lord. All of your days, praise Him, magnify the Lord. The richness of that, the fullness of that, can't be understood if you don't realize, first of all, that Peter is quoting the Old Testament and then have a strong enough understanding of the Old Testament to realize that in this point, David is historically where he is. Until you seek that word of God like milk for a newborn baby. Until you seek it for life, for nourishment and for strength. You won't catch, you won't see the fullness of what Peter is saying. You'll say, yes, I've tasted that the Lord is good. Glory to God, you know. But you'll be missing that the Lord is good in suffering. This is a proclamation not for good times 
Although it is good to praise the Lord in the good times. But this is specifically a proclamation of the greatness of the Lord through suffering. And we must love God's word as infants love milk if we are going to get that. Now listening to Sean talk about the Old Testament and he connected it extremely well. Then I imagine you have one of two uh, responses. Uh, One would be to say, Wow, that's exciting. There's just so much about the Word. It was one of the things that, that excited me when I first became a Christian was the fact that I, I understood I would never learn everything that there is to know about this, that it would always be new and fresh and that I would always be learning. That's one response. Another response would be, uh, there ain't no way I'm ever going to get that. You know, I mean, it just, it's too much. I can't take all that in. It's like drinking from a, from a fire hydrant and it's just too, you can't do it. It's too much. Well, it's too much apart from the Spirit of God. But if the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God and the Word are linked together, then the Spirit is going to help us to understand if we are committed to the Word. First Peter 1, 2, again, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up in the salvation. There are a couple of other places in the New Testament where milk is compared to meat and it's like, okay, you're a baby Christian, so take milk. When you get a little more mature, you can handle the meat. Peter's not using it in this sense at all. He is saying, just as a baby desires his or her mother's milk, You desire the Word. You are connected to God that way. And this milk is going to nourish you. And it's going to cause you to grow up into that salvation that began when you trusted Christ, but is so much greater than you ever knew. But we're not going to know about that salvation apart from God's Word, apart from being connected and being nourishing in that way. So briefly... Let's, let's think about five ways that we can enjoy this life-changing, life-sustaining, life-giving, life-enriching Word of God. You'll look again at these in home fellowship or home groups this week, sorry, with a company in Scripture. But for now, just want to challenge you to absorb God's Word in these five ways. First of all, just read it. I mean, that's simple enough, right? Even if you don't get it all, even if you don't make the connections initially, just read it. And you've heard Sean talk about the importance of the Old Testament. And, and again, I hope that's encouraging that this, this New Testament word is so much more uh, than maybe you thought it to be. If it's like, oh, wow, I, I just didn't know all of that. Well, just read it, even if you don't get it, first of all, at, at, at the first reading, just become familiar with it. Speaking of the Old Testament, have you ever read it? I would imagine that if I ask you, how many of you have read the New Testament? That uh, maybe over half the hands would go up in here. Maybe maybe somewhere upwards of three quarters of you would say, yeah, I've read from Matthew to Revelation, I've read it all. And say, okay, well, keep holding your hand up if you've read the Old Testament. wonder how many hands would be up then. I imagine a lot of hands would go down. Just read through Scripture. One of the ways I haven't talked about lately, I used to talk about a lot, is to read the one-year Bible. If you've never read through the Bible, it'll take you 15 minutes a day. That's all to get through Scripture. Pick up a copy of the one-year Bible in a, in, in a, in a 
easier translation if you'd like to. The New Living Translation is a wonderful way to read through the Bible in a year. You get the Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs every day, and it's already laid out for you. Even if you do no further study, then read through the Bible for several years running, you'll begin to get a better understanding of the big picture. You'll understand how God started right from the get-go. The moment that Adam and Eve fell, and he began talking as Sean said, out of your curse, redemption will come. God will make a good thing out of something that's bad. So just read. Then study. I mean, don't be content with general knowledge. If you're here this morning and you say, I, I didn't get that. I'm not sure I make the connection. Well, start studying. Again, another thing that's great about Scripture is this, as opposed to some of the um, other ways that we might learn and some of the other subjects and topics that we might learn. Uh, Sean mentioned E equals MC squared. don't think I'm ever going to get it. I just don't think I'm ever going to understand that. My mind just doesn't work that way. But you know what? It doesn't have to. But when it comes to Scripture... The Holy Spirit says, I really want your mind to work this way. And He says that for every Christ follower. And He helps us to understand. So start studying. Can I make a suggestion? Pick up an ESV study Bible. It's really on a seminary level, the instruction that it gives in there. But you can get it. If you'll work at it a little bit, if you'll just read the notes, and you have questions, ask one of the elders, ask one of the... Uh, staff, members, and we'll help walk you through that. Ask your home group leader. Just start in an ESV study Bible. If you really want to get serious about it, you can read all the notes before Genesis, all between Malachi and and, and Matthew, and then all at the end of the, the Bible after Revelation. Then go back and just start in Genesis and read through and get an understanding of God's plan. It helps you to see how God started there in the very beginning and worked all the way through and how he's got a chosen group of people that he that he works with all the way through. And these themes that Sean talked about this morning will begin to make more and more sense. When you go through, when you look in the ESV, when Scripture references are given, look it up. Look them up. Just get familiar with the Bible, which means that one of the things, if you're not, if you don't know this, then then, then you should. The first place you should start is to just memorize the books of the Bible. Well, I can't do that. Well, yes, you can. Quit whining. You can do that. Think of all the things that you memorize. We memorize what we want to, right? The things that are important to us are the things that stick with us. Well, a third way to absorb Scripture is to memorize it. Psalm 119.11 I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. A lot of good reasons to memorize Scripture. This may be one of the most important. Because God's Spirit uses His Word to encourage us to resist temptation, and to empower us to overcome it. I've stored up Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. But after we memorize, we should meditate on it. Joshua 1.8 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then your way will be prosperous. Then you will have good success. In other words, think 
deeply about what you've read. Just med- just turn Scripture over and over in your mind. and Especially what Sean has told us today. Go back, read our text from 1 Peter. Then go back to Isaiah 40 and see what Peter was thinking about. In fact, very strong possibility that Peter had been meditating days and days on Psalm 34 because you see that in- the influence of Psalm 34 in his letter so much. And then he, he said, you know, I... I want to write these people. And that's the way God worked. And all of Scripture is coming together as you meditate on it. And after absorbing Scripture, we must respond by a heart that is ready to obey. James 1.22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I mean, what good is it to receive these words of life? These are not just... Words about a subject. These are these are living words. What good is it to absorb these words and then words and then act as if they don't exist? It's kind of like, well, you know, okay, that's nice, like an inspirational thought for the day. No, it's more than that. These words are life, and it's a it's an amazing thing that you understand when you begin to recognize how that once you start obeying the light that God has given you, then He opens your understanding to Scripture more and more. You begin to understand Scripture in a way that you didn't. Because And, and why would God want to reveal His truth to those who were just going to misuse it? Why would He want to help you understand His Word when people are going to say, you're a hypocrite. I mean, you know a lot about the Bible, but you sure don't live like it. You live just any old way you want to. So obedience is, an, is a crucial element of understanding Scripture. God's Word is a treasure. And it's time we recognize the blessing that is ours if we will give it the place of priority that it deserves in our lives. Well, let's, let's pray. Our Father, we um, thank You. For this living and abiding Word of God. All flesh is grass. We know that. We're passing away. God, even many of us, even this moment, recognize that we're passing away. Even as we sit here. But Your Word never changes. Your Word never fails. It always abides. Make it an integral part of our lives. May we receive the nourishment from you that causes us to grow and to become more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand together?